Hey everybody, today we are talking about conversational AI in games. Now with us today to discuss is Kylan Gibbs, is Chief Product Officer at InWorld AI, the company currently with the biggest buzz and funding in this space. They have raised a lot of money, including a reported $50 million Series A last year, although rumored that it was actually even a lot more than $50 million, and at an over half billion dollar valuation. They also just recently announced a partnership with Xbox to include InWorld's NPC AI technology in games developed by Xbox. Also with us is Travis Boatman, a super experienced mobile game executive and CEO of Carbonated. He's one of the most sophisticated CEOs for AI in games in the industry, and he's actively integrating AI into his new mobile game. So let's find out what this is all about. Let's dive in deep. We're coming at you right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Data.ai to access estimates for rankings, downloads, revenue, usage, or engagement for millions of apps on the App Store and Google Play. Sign up for Data.ai. Khan, I, I thought we could start with a, a question about you because there is so much excitement and hype, and certainly there's a lot of people recording podcasts about AI and gaming, and there seems to be like a lot of like high-level you know, in terms of the general direction things are going and things like that. But uh, I do feel like a big part of the in-world thesis is directed at gaming and specifically AI NPCs for gaming. So I, I thought, just wanted to first start off by asking you about, you know, from your perspective, what are the major application areas for AI and games that you see, and then why did you guys at Inworld specifically decide to focus on the AI NPCs and sort of the conversational AI application area as opposed to some of the other areas? Awesome. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take that backwards. So I'll kind of start with a bit of the origin story, and then I think I can get, like go through the learnings that we had of like where I think this lands in games today and, and into the future. So, so my own background, I've been generative AI for a while now, like most of my career, kind of before it was cool, and sort of was at, at Google and at, at DMind actually helping to sort of build a lot of the models and then productionize those. I'm just working with Google Teams sort of across like search and assistant and cloud. And my job was basically taking a lot of the large language models and figuring out where it fit into Google products. And during that period, there was a lot of learnings of the types of products, the types of use cases where it resonated the most and also where there were the most challenges. And I met our CTO and my other co-founder, Mike, um, who was working at Google Cloud Conversational AI. And he had previously founded a company with Ilya, our, our other co-founder, um, who had actually built a company called API.ai, which got acquired by Google and became Google Dialogflow. And so you can kind of think about there is like our backgrounds were, and, the, and Dialogflow is the conversational AI platform that kind of powers most assistant type platforms today, including, including Google Assistant. And so we are coming from this with a background in generative AI and developer platforms. And we were really looking at the ecosystem and just, you know, we're all gamers and in our, in our personal life. And one of the big things that we were recognizing is, okay, you know, people are spending a significant amount of their life in virtual worlds, right? And the difference, like, you know, think about a game from a Mario to an Elden Ring, the level of immersion is, is significantly different. Even the time spent in there is significantly different. And then you, of course, go into you know, your, your competitive games and every people is spending you know, hundreds of hours you know, a month in these games. And the big thing that was missing compared to our normal lives is the kind of actual humanity, like the, the people, the interactions, the characters. And you know what's interesting is like we've got very used to game mechanics as they've existed over the last thirty years. You know we've seen some changes in game mechanics, basic game designs, but it's really been graphics that have evolved mainly over time. And you know what we saw is okay, if people are spending most of their time in these worlds, and if you compare them to our real world, where most of the mechanics, the way that we solve problems, we we you know do puzzles, you know collaborate, it's all via human or you know at least you know semi-human interaction. And so we were like, that's a big missing component. And even if you think about game mechanics, it's like, why do game mechanics really not involve that same type of problem solving that we use in our regular life? Well, and the fundamental answer is like, there's just not the technology for it. Like you can't create, NPCs are basically these like blunt objects that you can create dialogue trees around and can kind of facilitate storytelling, but ultimately don't, you know, con contribute to the immersion a lot. And so we basically set out to create a platform that actually solved that problem and created, you know, ultimately the developer platform to populate these virtual worlds with AI characters. And 
when we first started out, you know, there was the meta announcement and the metaverse hype and all these kinds of things. So, you know, we were swimming through all of these, you know, these, these nudges from different customers and asks. And, you know, we initially, of course, also, you know, naively, I guess, weren't being super creative. We thought, oh, you know, you take Assassin's Creed, you take Elden Ring, you take Skyrim, and you make the characters talk. And this kind of comes to your, your the question that you asked first, which is like, where are you seeing this in actual game designs today? And I think what's been really interesting for me over the last year, especially as game studios have started adopting this, is it's not at all about taking existing game designs and making characters talk. It's actually about introducing completely new game mechanics. Like one of the best quotes that I've got from customers, like we don't want to take Legend of Zelda and make Navi talk. We want to take Legend of Zelda and make the characters into the water temple. Meaning like, you know, you can imagine you have, you know, your quest is to make these two characters, you know, let's say it's a princess and you need her to, you know, marry the king. But in order to do that, you've got to find their, who are their five most influenced, you know, who are the people that five most influence them? And what are the missions and the conversations that you need to have with each of those people to convince that person to, you know, like, like the other person. And maybe you need to figure out, okay, one of these people is actually a snitch. One of these people actually speaks badly about everyone, you know, that you, you talk to them about, you know, and there's these really unique character, you know, one example was the, you know, this customer had a group of four characters in a single scenario that resulted in an hour and a half of gameplay. Like, like compelling gameplay through play tests and everything. And it, it completely changes the game mechanics. And so what I've seen is there's like three main things that characters contribute to for core game loops. The first is like deepening relationships. So you know, maybe folks have played Baldur's, Baldur's Gate. You know, the, the relationships you're able to develop with the characters there are, are deep. And the amount of, I don't know if you've seen the visualizations of the dialogue trees that they had to build, but it's, it's like hilarious. But the, you know, the ability to actually build those relationships deepens the complexity, the meaning of the game immensely. And that's just using sort of, you know, scripted dialogue still. And still, sometimes I feel like I'm clicking through every, every step, but the, and the relate, the concept of relationship, I want to expand, not just to like, you know, not just romantic relationships or anything like this, but actually how do you relate to the other people in the game that you're playing with? who similarly to if you were playing, you know, a PVP game, you might have that relationship with someone that you're playing against or, or with. And then, so that's relationships is I think where it introduces that kind of level of complexity. And that can also change the, actually be a core part of the game mechanic. The, the second, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess like wrapping up on relationships, like the, the way that I see that is like actually just changing the way that the actual like emotional investment that the, um, that the player basically has, um, within the game. So the second part is like progression. So this is kind of the idea that characters can give you new signals of progression. So in games, usually, you know, the core thing is that you have to give the player this constant sense of moving forward, you know, whether that's by them picking up new items, you know, unlocking some, you know, experience points, them getting something, there's this constant sense of progression and characters can actually give you that sense of progression as well by giving you some signals or feedback as you're going through the game. So for example, Nettie's re recently launched a game, Cygnus Enterprises, where like this character who's kind of like a Navi style character is actually giving you feedback consistently. And so you're kind of constantly getting this like, you know, level of feedback depending on your performance in the game. And that gives you this sense of like, I'm doing something and someone cares about that. And that means like, progression as however you want to design it is something that can really be you know built built i guess into the into the core game mechanics so i guess i've been talking i'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on those before i go on you know for the audience side of things we, we actually have you know kyle and i kind of know each other through the industry but we've never actually gotten like on a deep dive with each other so you know i'm sort of in the audience's perspective this like i want to learn more and and i think one of the ways that i want to learn more both selfishly for my team one day uh, when we go talking uh, about ways we can work together, but also, I guess, for the audience as well, like, like, how are people that you're partnering with right now? Like, what are they excited about? How are they starting to use your stuff? Like, you know, you know, what sort of from the studios you're partnering? Yeah, what, what are they showing? Up with? Like, oh, we're going to use it like this, or we did this cool thing with it. Like, tell us a little about what your customers are using it, and where where they're sort of excited about it. For sure, yeah. So then, I guess that brings me to like the you know, the third point. And I'll wrap up, and then I'll give you an example. So the last point is sort of you know, the progression relationships, and then role playing is the biggest one, I think, which is the actual ability for you to enact a role and feel like you're being put in that role. And I I think role playing, I want to extend like we have. A character who's for example like a therapist character and the goal of the character is to basically make the person feel like they're actually you know in a therapy session right and they can contribute to that through a lot of different inputs and, and gestures and actions and so the character's job is basically to facilitate that and so when you combine those three things around like relationships role playing and progression a really common use case we're seeing from AAA partners is 
something I would call like social simulator scenarios. So kind of like what I was bringing up before of like, you know, the water temple, but you know, you, you basically have, um, yeah. So yeah, without, I don't want to mention any names, unfortunately, but you know, there's, there's some very popular games that are centered around, you know, you can think about like high school, college, you know, students like this, but yeah. And, and so you can imagine a scenario where, you know, you're, you have some superpowers or you have some capacities and you go into a world and your job is to basically, you know, solve some crime or solve some situation. And so there's maybe five main characters, you know, 10 side characters, and then there's a whole world of living characters around that. And you want to have the player sort of step into that world and then be, instead of having, you know, a tutorial or anything, character greets them and says, hey, you know, hey, Joe, I really want you, I need you to come and do this with me and whatever, right? And then you probably, you know, go off piece and you ask them a bunch of stupid questions, but then the character kind of brings you back. And then let's say he walks up to another group of characters, initiates a conversation with them, you over, you know, you listen to that conversation and that gives you the context on the world and the scenario versus you having, for example, to, you know, read some card or, or get some, you know, over, over, overview. And then you're prompted and you said, hey, you know, we noticed that like, you know, Jimmy is, you know, he's actually been really upset lately, but he's a really core part of the group and we can't actually, you know, progress forward with this, this mission until, you know, we, we get him involved. And so, you know, you've got to then ask, you know, where's Jimmy's house? And you go over to Jimmy's house and you actually have a conversation with him to, you know, convince him that, you know, actually you're really important to this group and you have to build your trust level with him. So literally there's like a trust score that goes up that then activates a trigger on the game engine side, which like, you know, Jimmy gets out of bed and decides to come with you. And so all of this is basically just done through conversation, but it, it completely changes that game mechanic. And then what's interesting is all the characters share information. And so what that means is as things are said, you kind of have this like emergent storytelling piece as well, where you're still being beholden to that core of game design. And we have things like fourth wall controls that make sure that there's no hallucination. But as soon as something is said, so let's say, you know, I said, you know, I'm actually a detective in my previous life and I'm now just here, you know, helping you all out. Now all the other characters will know that I'm a detective and they'll respond to me accordingly. You know, if I, if they answer any questions, like for example, let's say, in the character, you know, Jimmy mentioned something that actually was never in the script. All the other characters have access to the information so that it, it maintains that coherence. Because I even find like, and if you take any actions, for example, like let's say I, I hit Jimmy's dog and Jimmy was mad about that. <laughs> now all the other characters are gonna say like, stay away from my dog, Travis. You know, I really think, you know, that's a, that's a dangerous scenario, which means you have this kind of context of like this. And I think this is why I always push like AI NPCs are kind of like the symptom but what is actually happening in the background of that is like a living world. And every action that you take has a consequence that is actually saved down to that entire session state so that whenever you interact with anyone else, that consequence is felt. Similar to like, you know, I think games like Baldur's Gate do this really well, but in a sort of more limited capacity. And so at the end of the day, the entire, you know, you might go through a five hour mission just by going between characters and having conversations and changing people's trust scores and maybe, you know, having to take some actions that, you know, change their status. And all of that is is basically just, you know, controlled by this this system. And, you know, the the talking character part of it is like the endpoint, but is ultimately the sort of the mass of the entire like living world that we're we're basically orchestrating in the back end is I think what actually is like the big you know, the big change there. Travis, do you like based upon what, what you're hearing and I, I think just just for the audience, in my experience, just talking to you, Travis, about AI and gaming, you seem to be kind of on the forefront in terms of like how you're trying to integrate AI in your game. And I, I don't know how much you can talk about that yet, but how, like, what are you specifically looking for in, in terms of some of these capabilities? And I, I can go ahead and speak to, to kind of like what I'm looking at as well. Yeah, and no, I'm happy to have it. So I think for me, uh, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm an old timer. I've been doing games since like the late 80s. So I'm super old timer. And I think one of the things that I've learned over the years to stay to still hopefully stay relevant in the games industry is you sort of have to keep learning all the new tech. Otherwise, I'd, I could say like, I was really good at the Sega Genesis, right? And like, where did that go? Um, so you're always kind of on the front end of learning. And so, you know, I think there's been lots of great changes to, to the games industry over the years. And I think that the two big ones that come to my mind was obviously, you know, the internet hit like all parts of the game industry. And I have sort of like three parts that I talk about, you know, it's like tech, it's business, and it's the creative parts of the, of the business. And the internet sort of the rival of the internet hit all three of those other things hit some one segment of the graphics hit the, you know, the, the visual creative side and 
you know, in-app purchase sort of hits a little bit of both, whatever. But the AI stuff is the second time I've ever seen anything that hits like all of them at the same time. Like it hits the technical side, allows you new ways of engineers to code, right? Whether it's Copilot or it's ChatGPT or whatever. So the technical implica implications of AI on game production, strictly on the technical side, is amazing. All, all of our engineers are using some version of this or another. We have a, a UI guy in our team who uses who's not hard a coder, but he's now using, he's coding all of his own UI stuff using ChatGPT and Copilot. So the technical implications of it are pretty amazing. The business implications of it are pretty amazing. We have a, you know, in our game that isn't quite announced yet, we're doing a lot of kind of like live ops globalization stuff. And we had a huge pipeline that we were, we were building for like taking our content everywhere in the world. And they had, you know, we'll just say millions of dollars of expected cost coming, coming to us. But now with the large language models, you can generate all of that content, you know, globally and translate it at the same time and integrate it into your backend through the technical APIs to allow you to create content, deploy it in a way that is a massive cost savings that we, we were about, about to hit. And then, of course, on the creative side, I think it's what most people see on the Internet. But on the creative side, it's, you know, the mid journeys, it's the image creation. It's, I mean, I love Eleven Labs. I'm like a hardcore user of Eleven Labs. I've got multiple voice models trained, mine, my dad, my family our in-game, you know, stuff like we're, we're using it all over the place. Um, and it's amazing to see it hit all three. And so to stay relevant back to kind of, you know, career longevity, for those of you guys in the audience who want to be in games, keep learning because uh, if you learn something too well and it goes away, you're going to have to evolve. And so when this AI stuff showed up, I sort of, oh, this is one of those learning moments. I better start learning. And so I've been spending a lot of time just playing and experimenting. You know, Joe and I spend a lot of time talking to each other. That's how he heard about some of my experimentations. One of our friends, Kenshi, he's super in the learning mode too. And he and I kind of share ideas back and forth. But given that I'm sort of learning on my own and experimenting, I have like the personal lens of what I think matters to both myself and to customers. But because we're also running a studio, you can see the direct correlation of like, oh, this isn't just technically cool, it actually has direct implications to player experience and to costs and to the ability to make cooler content globally, all this cool stuff. And so, you know, where it makes sense for us, we found like four different places where it, it directly just makes sense. And in a way that it was things we were already doing. So I think the way that we plugged it, it wasn't like we were like, oh, there's AI, let's chase AI and be part of the buzzword thing. It was more that we already had this feature planned and it was going to be expensive and narrow. And then when the AI stuff showed up, we could be like, well, now this narrow feature is going to have way more color, way more sophistication. And it's going to be broad because we can bring this feature to everybody on earth at the same time. I would also say you can make it super personalized. I'll tell you one other story about playing with AI. I was playing with Eleven Labs and I was going to a dinner and I was sitting with a bunch of other folks from the games industry. And on my way to dinner, I went on my phone, I recorded some stuff on Eleven Labs and this person's voice who I happened to grab. And I had to customize some specific stuff about the guy at dinner. When I was sitting next to him at dinner, I said, hey, have you heard of this Eleven Labs and ChatGPT stuff? And he had heard about it a little bit. And I said, check this out. And I had a, a DID character face, which was mid-journey generated. So I went to mid-journey, I made a character face. I had it talk, so it was animating, and it was using a voice that this guy was familiar with, and it was talking directly about him. And I had created all that while I was in an Uber on the way there, and it blew this guy's mind. And I was doing it because I was testing to see, like, do people care about this? Like, I think it's cool, but do players or do, does audience care about that? And his reaction, it was just like his mind was blown, and he was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. How did you do that? And I was like, oh, I just kind of played with these four different tools and kind of, you know, really ugly way stitched them together. But the personalize using AI to personalize content for customers is amazingly powerful because it when it says your name and it talks about you and things that are happening 10 minutes ago in your life that directly translated to me in game making which is like oh if you're a player in a game it can use your character's name it can talk about things you just did and it can say it in your local language which is crazy to me that's just so awesome and uh so after a couple of those experiments personally uh, we just had huge conviction. And so you might imagine we're building a whole bunch of different systems into our production that will hopefully make those experiences for players very unique and custom to them, which, you know, you frankly just couldn't do before. Even at a big company, you know, I was at EA and at Zynga and, you know, been, been a bunch of big companies and you have big dollars. You still couldn't do that at scale. Like it's so difficult to build, you know, as kind of was mentioning, like these, these conversation decision AI trees that have to like figure out and then try to build on and then localize it. And it's so cost prohibitive. 
now it's i mean it's 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 almost straight out of the box it's pretty wild anyway a little bit of a ramble but but I, I'm, I'm super pro on all this stuff i'm a big fan i think it's 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 awesome it's gonna make better experiences for customers it's it's pretty neat and Kyle, maybe i could ask you so like the specific application and especially when it comes to the conversational ai part that i think about is so we're going to start a new game project in the next month or two and one of the game designs would involve a character and kind of like the way that I'm viewing conversational AI is in kind of like two, two big buckets for us. One is like kind of like this nice to have, which is from the perspective that, you know, if I if you have an interactable character, kind of what you described, the, the first point about creating a deeper interaction, better emotional connection with a character in the game that you're that you're interfacing with and having that character also understand the context of the game where you could actually get tips from that character where it's like hey you know we lost that last battle you should actually get this card or upgrade this rune or something like that and i just think that people are lonely so like just you know having somebody to talk to in a game i think you know you know i've worked in forex before and we we saw like some of the the retention and monetization numbers based upon if if a player joined an alliance or not, but potentially having that move metrics and also just the notion of a strange attractor, right? So having like this kind of like to the point that Travis had, it's like, oh, hey, this is kind of cool. I, di I didn't know games or like that could do that, or maybe this game could, could, could do these things. So that's one part. And then the second part that I'm thinking about, and this actually goes back to a podcast we recorded a while back, Travis, where you talked about how there are new opportunities in gaming based upon technology advancement, kind of like, you know, when John Carmack came up with all the 3D stuff that enabled games like Doom and Quake and things like that. And so on the second part, I'm, I'm wondering also, Kylan, is around the new kinds of games that fundamentally integrate your technology in such a fundamental way to enable like a new genre of game or something like that. But I just wanted to kind of you know, kind of express how I'm thinking about conversational AI and whether you would agree or disagree with like how, how I'm viewing the technology and whether that fits and if that aligns with what you guys are doing at InWorld. Yeah. So, I mean, on, on your first point, I think that the most interesting thing I've observed is, you know, we kind of had this hypothesis coming in when we built the company that, you know, if we build this platform to allow people to interact with characters, like that's kind of enough. And I think that's kind of true. It's interesting. There's a novelty factor to that. We've also realized is like the relationships that you have with these characters. So like think about like I love Final Fantasy VII. Like Cloud Strife was like you know my like OG coolest person I could imagine, and to actually be able to develop a meaningful relationship with that person is kind of like you know for the people who fan fan fanboy over Elon Musk, right? It's like having that personal relationship with Elon. But in the in the game context, like you're in their world. And so if you as the game designer do a good job as well in like character building and narrative narrative design, your character is going to really pop out. And then I really do want to get deeper with that person. And so it allows me to get deeper into the world and explore lore. So like there's a lot of times, right? Like, you know, I, I spent way too much time on Baldur's Gate over the last little while. And there's times when it's like, I don't actually know what the heck the Yankee is. Like what, what is the background there? I'm like, I haven't really been given the options and dialogue to be able to ask that question. I just want to go talk to a character and ask them all these questions and I can't do that. And so it allows me to develop that individual relationship with the character, but also to develop that individual relationship with the world itself. And because I'm also playing a role within that world, I feel like I'm being seen within it. And like one of the things that I think we've seen over the last little while is for better or for worse, you know, it's really hard to build a new IP or a new world. And once you do, there's a million and one spinoffs off of that. And so I think the AI as well will help people develop that like deeper investment in the, in the world as well as that character relationship. And so to your point on like, you know, people, people developing that more meaning, meaningful, emotional relationship with the character, I think it also you know, deepens it with the world and also with the storyline itself and makes it feel like, you know, I'm able to interact with the narrative how I want to as a person. And that kind of ties to like where we're seeing, I think like there's, there's definitely like the biggest thing advice that I loved. One of my writers, friends who's a notable writer suggested was, you know, when you look at what's happening with AI right now, like Travis, you mentioned like the mid journey example, right? Like the first thing people do within technology is try and create what people have done before, right? But faster and easier. So it's like, you know, artists can make a picture, but now I can generate a picture in like a few seconds. But he was like, 
focus on the new types of media that have never been possible before, because ultimately one, that's where you're not going to be competing. You know, you're going to be adding to creatives capacity versus, you know, maybe eroding their, you know, their paychecks. And you're going to be contributing something new to the market and expanding that pie overall. And so that's kind of like where, like in the kind of former camp of like new game, like add-ons to existing game designs, something that we've seen is common that actually wasn't expected is basically companion style characters for first person shooters or real time strategies where you basically have something like a Cortana style character who's coming along with you responding to things in real time. You can often make commands through that character. So, you know, you can be like, okay, I go pick up the ore and then like, you know, set off the, you know, the alert and do this. So it's basically you have that kind of real, it's similar to like if you're playing with another, with another player, so you're kind of adding to that. Similarly with an RPGs, of course, you know, being able to just have those conversations, you know, you can think about basically any like JRPG, being able to have those side of scripted dialogues, but turning that into something where I can ask any question that I want, if I want to, that's a big one. And then there's, of course, you know, I think there's any sort of big narrative game, you know, you can think about the Bioshock style. I think just that ability to deepen the relationships with characters in the world is, is beneficial. Now going on to new game designs, I think this there's something around this, like, you know, the more... I guess, less triple AE types of games, right? So for example, in, in a lot of Asian Asian countries right now, these kinds of social simulators have really popped up. So these like, there's a, a huge genre of them basically on mobile apps. And the idea is you're kind of playing out some form of social scenario, whether that's, you know, at school or work or whatever it is, and you're just going through basically a bunch of dialogue trees. And so there's a huge up opening up there to basically turn those into like proper types of like simulation games so simulation i think is is an interesting one i think how that expands into things like you can think about the sims but in a more advanced way where you're actually seeing characters interacting and you're more in like an observing mode but maybe being able to influence that is something that we're seeing come up a lot and basically i think there's a this genre of what i would call like interaction focused role-playing games, right? Where instead of, you know, these turn-based strategies or whatever you're doing, I don't know how much you, you both have played, like, but in Baldur's Gate, for example, right, you have your dialogue turns and a lot of the gameplay and the actual like, success comes through, you know, rolls of the die. You could imagine that, but you're sort of going through that that in a sort of a, a conversational or interactive way. And so that's, that's, I think, a big one is those role-playing games. I think, you know, in the, in the context of mobile games, being able to even inject a lot of users, a lot, frankly, a lot of people are all even using it where they're just sending a trigger from the game engine side to our server that's causing the character to speak. And so that's just a, like removing the need to build out dialogue trees. You're just basically now have an infinite number of responses that the character could give. So that's in sort of, you know, mobile, you know, basically anywhere from a first person shooter or, you know, these strategy types of games on mobile. And then a big one that is definitely coming up is like detective tile games. This has probably been most of our launches. So games where you're uncovering some form of information to kind of progress the story. And that information may mean that you need to get one piece of sort of information from one person to give to another person to then unlock the next piece of information. And that sort of is, is definitely lends itself well to the technology of kind of just having that unlocked. And like all those things that I mentioned, you can imagine how those can be combined in, in certain game designs. But definitely, I think like, you know, social simulation, detective style role playing games, as well as kind of like the one that we hadn't really expected is the companion mode or guide mode for, you know, different characters basically across any game design is super interesting. And then there's a few new things that we've seen also popping up, which we call like, I call them like a show game hybrid where, you know, you have something like a, a TV show, but someone's actually controlling it in real time. So you basically have the characters interacting and then you have like a streamer who's actually controlling in the background what the characters are going to say next and they can respond to the audience and they can actually enact that. And so those are like completely weird, you know, creative mode that we've seen come up. And, and I think those we'll see the first test coming out of that in December, but those are all, I think, super exciting. And, and kind of what I've been most excited by is, the fact that we're seeing completely new types of game designs being imagined and game mechanics being imagined, as well as, you know, augmenting, as Travis said, those existing you know, game mechanics and just expanding the the how how narrow, I guess, a possible feature or a scenario could be. In terms of like, I, I think the market's already spoken in terms of excitement about in-world, in terms of, you know, I, I think it's been reported that you guys raised 50 million on a over half billion valuation. So clearly people are excited. Is that based largely on the opportunity just within gaming and existing kinds of applications? Or is does that contemplate like people figuring out new 
mm-hmm. game styles, genres, and also expanding outside of gaming? So we started out being a bit more agnostic beyond gaming, but I think now we've really settled down to like gaming as our core focus. And for example, when we even worked through the investment with Lightspeed, Moritz, who is the partner there, actually leads Lightspeed Gaming. He's, you know, he was like, you know, you, you both, I think, you know Moritz. And, you know, yeah. he, he's a huge gamer himself. And like the thesis, the hypothesis is really focused on gaming, right? Like, sure, there's probably some value in a lot of areas around like learning and education and enterprise. But ultimately, the future set is going to be very different and how we build the platform is going to be very different versus working with game developers. And so that is our core focus. And I think most of this valuation and the excitement and everything is really focused on gaming. Whether or not it's sort of, a, I think there is definitely a bet on new game designs coming out, right? Like, I think over the next two to five years, I think there will be a lot of sort of revamping existing types of game designs. But the hope is that, you know, over the next 10 years, we see you know, half the market now stepping into this new core game loop that requires this type of interactive AI as a part of that. And, you know, we're also thoughtful of like, how do we make that the easiest to adopt? So we're looking at ways of dramatically reducing prices, looking at on-device serving, you know, making it more efficient. Because I think that ultimately, like, if most of the gaming market starts adopting this stuff and you have hundreds of millions of hours being logged every day, you know, you're going to want to make sure that all of that stuff works well. And so I think there's definitely the bet on the kind of existing game designs, the new game designs, and also how we fit this into like being a core tool within the, the game development space overall. Does the, with the current technology you have at Inworld, can you basically, could you run like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign with the Inworld AI as a dungeon master today is that is that possible? Yeah, we, it's actually our most popular character. We just have one <laughs> that, like one user built dungeon master, and like you can go in. It's very it's different from a traditional you know D and D because you're just doing it based on conversations. So you don't have like a <clears throat> dice roll, for example. You could definitely build this. Like we are working with some people, and a lot of indies are looking into this. I, I would love if someone listening wants to build the D&D <laughs> properly on top. I am not. We have a couple D and D game masters actually in our company, but obviously we're we're they're dedicated to the platform. So if anyone wants to build it, very supportive. But yeah, so basically you can go in and you describe the characters. The character say, hey, you know, where do you want to go today? And like, I will always come up with the most obscure thing that no human could ever come up with. So what what did I say the other day? I was like. I am in like a small snowball at the end of a pointy shoe. And inside that snowball, you know, there's like a small gummy. And inside that there's, you know, a microscopic universe that is like populated with like pink gnomes, right? Like really weird. And then the character will just go, okay, great. You know, here's here, you're in this world. This is your scenario. You know, here's your options to like what you can do next. And I'll give an option and elaborates it. And like by the end of, you know, people are spending, we have some people spending like two to three hours in there. And by the end of it, like you've built out a world just because the character is sort of telling it to you. And of course, in the you know, traditional D&D lore, you've got a lot to work with. But coming up with a completely new story is very difficult. And it's honestly, I love it. Like seeing some of the stuff that the characters are able to fabricate is is hilarious. And I think like it's pushed my creativity because I'm like now I'm like, OK, what is the weirdest possible scenario I could come up with just to see if it could possibly improvise that? And it usually does a phenomenal job. So. Yeah, I think like D&D types of use cases are some of the most fun. Yeah, well, the other thing that's neat about it too, which, you know, we're not there yet, but hopefully you guys get there because I'm excited to use your stuff. But but also, you know, putting these tools not just in the hands of, of sort of the the studios, but also in the hands of the, of the players, right? So, so imagine you're playing a D&D, D&D game. You want to create your own missions, right? You want to create yeah. your own user-generated content, sort of like, oh, you and your buddies. It's sort of like super modding, right? It's like the, the people who can build stuff around games now have access to these tools to do some pretty sophisticated creative that maybe is not their skill set or not in their language, as an example. Like like that stuff to me is so wild that, you know, you could have D&D players who want to do a campaign and they want to do it for friends or audience that maybe are from another country and don't speak your language. And being able mm-hmm. to give creators that kind of power to both not only create the content, but then get that content to to different folks. Uh, all over the world is um, is super cool. And when you're talking about games, I was thinking like it was sort of sitting here like noodling. You know, it, it's a lot of the old stuff is made new again. You know, I'm, I'm in such an old timer that I remember my you know my first games were things like Zork. Right, you're talking about like new game mechanics, and and, and I was yeah. thinking like game mechanics are about decisions, and decisions if it's text oriented, you know, the decisions have to be text oriented. So sort of as you said, like D and D or you know these old games like Zork. And then when you're talking about mobile, 
you know, there's a lot of studios out there that this is like their bread and butter. Like, I don't know if you guys know Oliver Meow. He was formerly Center Square. He runs a company called Pixelberry. I think they got acquired by NCSoft. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all their stuff is like high school story and like Hollywood U. And it's, it's, you know, it's a mobile version of using text and decisions and content for players to make these journeys, which are super, super successful. When you extend that farther into the console stuff today, you have obviously Telltale. I think that's run by Jamie Adderley now. But like Telltale makes, you know, higher end console, beautiful, spectacular games that are essentially, you know, the the puffed up, super high end versions of, you know, the, these these decision made text decision made games with with story that's in audio and the like. But yeah, there there's a huge you know, sector of, of the industry that just loves this stuff and, and not, not only making it, you know, better, you know, for, for everybody, but making the cost lower for the creators, both the studios and the cut co- and, and, and the, 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 hopefully the people in the audience who are like, I want to like, did you see a game like this, giving them those kinds of tools? <clears throat> it's just super wild. I love I it. Think that's I think. hitting on a really important point, which is like where, what I've seen this do to like do for creatives. So before you had to kind of map out or still for most AAA games is still being developed in the way that you have to like map out every single possible scenario, right? So you're building, you know, a game where you have dialogue trees or whatever it is, and you need to build every single scenario, which means like, you know, you're kind of limited in your creative capacity. You're like, okay, I want to build this whole open world, but if I build out every scenario of it, I'm going to be working on this for like 24 years, right? Totally. So you're like, okay, I'm going to scope this down dramatically. And so what it does for creatives, like there's a, a guy who built the GTA mod on top of InWorld and... For example, like that gave him the control where he was just focused on like, what is the story I want to tell? Who are the characters in it? How would they roughly be set up? What would their goals be? You know, how would this fit in? And then when they instantiate that world, the player just has full agency and they can basically, you know, do whatever they want within it. But that means that the creator gets to focus on like, what is the world and the story I want to tell versus how do I map out like every single little side scenario to make sure that everything stays on rails because our system We'll make sure that it does, right? It's like, okay, if this is the goal the character is to do, it'll make sure that that happens. And I think ultimately what this will mean is like it, that lens, like the, the number of amount of time I'm sure people spend developing games, frankly, won't change that much. It just means the worlds we get to experience, the narratives we get to experience are going to like explode in terms of, you know, the the depth. And that's what I'm, I'm super excited for. And the way I kind of put this is I think that there's a transition between and I think that games was the first to kind of incept this into this just media. But like, you know, when you consume a book, right, I, as a producer of a book, produce the book, you consume it in the exact form that I wrote it, right? When you get a game, I kind of give you controls, but you still kind of, you know, you're Mario jumping up and down, you know, there's still a very kind of tight script to that. And so I think that it changes the dynamic from this consumer producer dynamic where I'm producing something you're consuming directly to I'm kind of producing this like nebulous you know, orb of, of possibilities. And then you're actually co-creating as the player what the actual end experience is. And so it lends that agency both to creators and I think to players as these partial creators as well. And and I think what we've seen in terms of the explosions of MMOs and Fortnite and all these other areas is people really want to like co-create. They want that that experience. Even the fact that Zelda worked this into their most recent release, right, is, is hilarious. Like, you know, you can build your your own little contraptions and everything. I, I think there's very clearly an interest from from players in in taking part in the creation process a bit more as well. Kylan, I, I think one thing coming from more of the free-to-play mobile space that I have concerns about is really around economics, right? Like, yep. and especially like if you have a lot of interactions that have to call back to the the in-world servers and just determining whether it's like the the companion application that you mentioned, which is an application that we've actually looked at quite quite a bit, and getting the the cost to help us be as you know to gain the benefits of the conversational AI, and but also keeping the cost low. Like, how should developers think about the economics I, I don't i actually don't know what your specific economic model is you know other companies charge on a per per interaction basis wondering how you guys charge yeah. and yeah yeah so we've we recently actually just updated our billing so we worked we've worked through a lot with a lot of customers both in standard understanding the reasonable cost points like what could you pay per user per month and then also on like an interaction basis and so where we ended up was like our goal was to be for the gaming vertical to be more performant, faster, you know, more efficient than like OpenAI or any other kind of foundation model provider that you get, don't even get, you know, all the bells and whistles, but also at a cheaper price. And so where we ended up is now we have a price of a maximum 
of 0.2 cents per request, which basically works out to it's it's hard. It kind of depends on the type of game and how much like conversation fits into it. But let's say you had you know someone playing and and thirty minutes of gameplay a day. You know, in that they're maybe having five minutes of interaction, and that's like averaged over a month. You end up with something like a dollar per user per month. You know, and that's like that's like pretty pretty high because that still doesn't factor in then things like discounts. We do scaled discounts, so as you hit you know larger number of users, that that drops off, and so you know you're going to be looking at at like, you know, the maximum something like it well, depending on your title. If your whole game is talking to characters, probably a bit more, but hopefully we're also <laughs> adding more value there. It's that's possible. But in most games it'll end up being something around, you know, like under a dollar a month. And then as you go to scale, it could be even more than or or less than that. And one thing that we're working on as well is and hope to kind of pioneer on is a hybrid or on dev- like hybrid in terms of on device and, and server side, as well as proper on device serving of parts of the models, which means that we can start to then reduce those costs even further and do caching and everything else. And I don't that might not be ready, you know, for a little while, but we are kind of pushing and working with some major partners and hardware in the space to make that more accessible. Because I think within the next two years, hopefully everything that we're seeing right now, which is mainly done through server side processing, can be done on a device, which also then of course reduces some connectivity concerns and everything. But what that means is I'm fairly confident that even like the price that we're at today, you know, I recognize like depending if you're free to play and depending what your acquisition costs are, like a dollar per user could be a lot. But you're also that's like that's for like an actually active user, right? You're not gonna you're gonna be paying a cent, you know, per for a non-active user because it's all it's all right. consumption or usage based. So you're really only gonna be paying that like dollar per active user, which is important, versus like some of the I think that's you know some other services do actually like user oh, Unity for example, <laughs> <laughs> user based costing, which is not which is not the case for us. And then of course you know I also think that the key thing is. For games coming out in the next year, I think it's already at that point. Our price, our costs and prices have dropped, I think, 20x since we launched. And I think that will continue to go down. Meaning that as folks are in the development stages and are like, hey, I'm building a game, but it's not going to launch for two to three years. I'm going to say the economics are going to be very, very positive. If, if like, could be potentially, like, you know, neutral margins, because you may get to a point where we're doing more on, on device serving and everything. So... Yeah, we we are going to be looking, I think, at like ways to improve that. But I already think where we're at today is actually like works, at least for most developers. And then what we also are opening up is a a way to basically shift the cost into a revenue opportunity if that's wanted. So we do a we're opening up a program. It'll be called Play Pass, and the idea behind that is consumers or players can pay us a subscription fee, and then they get access to unlimited usage of in world any any in world powered game. So they play your game, they pay all your fees. They have this, but you basically don't actually pay in world at all. The consumer is basically paying, like covering your cost in that case. And they might pay, we're figuring out the cost, but let's say 10 to $20 a month. And for that, they can play any game that's powered by in world. And then the developer doesn't actually take that as a cost. So we're, and not all developers want to go that route, but you know, for those maybe indies who don't have, you know, those upfront costs, that's a good option. Yeah. I by think the way, for, for oh, go, what go it's ahead, Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say, by the way, for what it's worth, I, I love that you guys are thinking about the split between both backend and client and coming from a mobile perspective as devices get faster and faster and faster and more and more, you know, Apple's neural engines, depending on how much access you yeah. actually have to that hardware, you know, being able to 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 have that choice, I think is, is super smart. So super well done. And there's a lot of games that, you know, the smaller guys who just don't have the the capability in their teams to to be able to spin up servers or deal with 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 that kind yeah. of live op support, having that optionality I think is super smart. Well, you know, well, well done. That's awesome. I mean, I I, I think it's a, just a side note that of course you know seeing the fact that Assassin's Creed and Resident Evil are going to be on the iPhone 15 Pro, I'm like, wait a second, Apple's going to next now be the biggest competitor for Sony and Xbox over the next few years, and I had not anticipated that. So anyway, there's a there's I saw a post today. This is probably and depending when this podcast comes out, definitely date us if somebody watches this like a year later. They're like, of course everyone does this, but I saw a a, a YouTube where there's a guy. I think he was in Japan, but he plugged in his iPhone 15 Pro with a Bluetooth controller and he's playing whatever it was, you know, Resident Evil on his plasma screen on the wall. So he's sitting back on his couch with his Bluetooth controller wow. playing Resident Evil and his iPhone is plugged in through USB-C directly to his screen running it, whatever it was, 1080p. And it looks looks amazing. So so yeah, like there's there's these interesting use cases sort of starting to show up on the horizon. That's but, fascinating. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah. 
Travis, I don't know if you have worked through economics for integrating AI in your own games, but I, I do, like for me personally, I have had a little bit of trouble, you know, on an interaction basis, making things work out. So like one of the ideas that, that you know, I had was maybe what we could do is like, you don't have all the AI turned on or the interactions with your characters turned on unless you buy a battle pass. That's then, right. It's on the other side of, of, of monetization. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't know if you've uh, thought thought through like how to make the economics mm-hmm. work, as, you know, as a, as a developer. But that's some of the yeah. things that that we've been thinking about is just to try to get the cost down. Yeah, I think we have a, a two lens approach at it. One is on the on the on the long term economic side, exactly what you said, right? Basically, like putting the use you know, spend side of it behind monetization. So you're, and you're just saying to players, look, if you, which I think is fair, if you're saying to players, you like this stuff and it's super expensive and you want to pay for it, great. If you don't like it and it's too expensive, don't use it. It's not that valuable of a feature. So, so basically democratizing, putting in front of players and saying, do you like this? Pay for it. If you don't, Hey, that's cool. So that's sort of, I think that downstream of engagement, but I think one of the ways we're thinking about it is, is in the first experience for, for, for new players, it's part of your spend. And what I mean by that is, you know, you see Hollywood movies who will spend $10 million on a three second explosion of a building or something, right? And they use that for marketing, they use that for excitement, and they use that to draw people in and give them a new experience. And so I think if there's some cost associated with just giving cool entertainment to players, you know, you can sort of allocate that spend as part of production. And, and then you got to be careful because if obviously if DAU ramps and you get out of control, that that allocated spend could get eaten up and, and turn negative quickly. But but if it works and it, it's a, you know, you're having a lower, I don't want to get too numbery, but lower CPI based on the, the spend of that, you know, th- there's a lot of ways that you can sort of make that make financial sense as part of your creative. Uh, and so we sort of break it into two chunks, part of creative sort of in the CPI marketing bucket, right, as part of production, something that separates you from the pack, gets players excited, is just, uh, you know, part of that cost. But then on a usage side of it, putting it on the backside behind spend. Um, at least that's how we're approaching it. You know, who knows? Uh, we're not, we're not, certainly not live yet. And, and you know, it all sounds uh, theor- theoretically great. Um, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. Yeah, and but I, I, I guess... I, I'm a huge fan of where this is all going and, you know, I'm an optimist. So for the audience, you know, I'm, I'm a crazy optimist. So I know there's a lot of people who have dark, dark thoughts about AI, what it's going to do to the world and everything else. I'm a super optimist. I think you have to be to, to stay in games this long. And I just see all the, the good parts about this. So for right. that's And if the interactions improve your metrics, whether, whether it's retention or overall monetization, then I guess you could make an argument that AI-enabled players would be on a different ARPU curve with a different LTV. So then you could potentially have greater spending capacity against the players that have AI turned on. And also um, just acquisition, separating us off from the 50,000 games that are out there, right. you know, Str- where strange you sort of say, hey, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a big part of this. And if it doesn't, and I think that's a little bit, maybe I can't speak for what we're kind of saying, but maybe that's a part of when you start about talking about using AI as a different game mechanic, you know, really separating yourself from the rest of the world and saying, yeah. hey, this is a, a new way of play mm-hmm. and, and really, you know, sort of launching yourself out of the, the noise of all the other games a bit. Pokemon Go ask, you know, how, how, how that sort of the, the, the brand and the new interaction model worked yeah. and, and sort of burst them out. You know, there's some version of that here. And if that's true, it's priceless, right? The amount of money you spend on getting that up and out is essentially priceless. And so, you know, you're making a bet on does that work? And you got to have conviction as a creative in a studio. But if it works, yeah, it becomes priceless. If it doesn't and- work. Hey, you better be able to turn that off quick because you're going to be in trouble. But, you know, but if it works, you know, which is what we're betting on, we're betting on this stuff that separates you from the pack. But, you know, we've also seen like some interesting cases um, with like not just, you know, creative mechanic design, but monetization design as well, where, you know, you Tamagotchi style Pokemon Go style games, right, where you have the relationship with the characters, you actually care more about them. And for example, you know, you have to buy now an item that like, you know, changes a character and makes them now, you know, your, your partner, your companion or whatever. And before they hated you. So, you know, maybe you buy them like a special cake, but it actually costs, you know, 10 real world dollars, right? Depending on the type of game design, especially for free to play mobile, I think those types of things become very interesting because, you know, before it's like, okay, I could change it and it changed a little icon in the UI, but now the character will actually talk to me about something that they didn't before, or it will help me progress, right? It's like, there, there are definitely, of course, we all know these, like, you know, there's certain players. I actually am embarrassingly one of these Pokemon Go players who will, like, spend way more money than I should to, like, progress. <laughs> and and I'm happy to do it, right? And and so I think it's interesting to think from a game design perspective as well what this will mean for monetization design. I don't know yet exactly what the end state will be, but I certainly think it opens up new options. 
And Kylan, maybe we could speak a little bit about differentiation and maybe the competitive landscape in, in the sense that, you know, when it comes to, and this, this is a new space. So for game developers like myself and Travis that are looking at trying to integrate AI NPCs into their game, like what, how should we be evaluating, you know, mm -hmm. different companies in the space in terms of, you know, should it be cost? Should it be capabilities? And then if it's capabilities, uh, you know, how should we be thinking about how to characterize specific, you know, capabilities for, for the service? How, how should customers think about mm -hmm. the differences between different AI and PC vendors out there? Yeah, so I think that the, the f options that we see at least most studios taking is so you can either build something from scratch. To do that, you probably need about a $20 million upfront cost. So <laughs> it's like... Unless you're like a really large public game studio, probably not an option to try and build all your own models from scratch. Some of yeah. them are wanting to do this. It's it's like a reality. The reality is you also probably need to hire, you know, 20 machine learning engineers, set up, you know, servers, buy $10 million in NVIDIA GPUs. Good luck. But, you know, it's, it's an option. So that's like option one, which is, I think, not open to many folks. The second is to try and build from scratch, but using some of the existing foundation models. So you could, for example, use OpenAI calls. You could use things like Langchain, like lots of open source libraries. I think it's frankly a good option for certain types of game designs. Like we've had some folks who talked to us and they wanted to basically just build something like a chat GPT, but with some you know game mechanics built in. InWorld can power that, but it might be overkill in some cases. The reality is InWorld actually is cheaper, though, than almost any OpenAI service. So you probably still could even just use it as like a, a foundation model in that context. But we do see people doing that. What is the most common scenario is that we see people trying to experiment. So they'll do it, for example, a POC where they hook up ChatGPT to some characters and they run, you know, a hackathon internally. And they say, oh, this actually is pretty cool. We can do some cool stuff with this. And then they get to the point where they're like, OK, now we want to add on emotions, relationships, you know, narrative controls in terms of like scenes and, and design. We want to do knowledge systems. We want to ingest, you know, these 100,000 facts. And they're like, okay, wait a second. Each of those is about five engineering weeks with four engineers. And at some point they're like, oh, wait a second. To build this ourselves is just very expensive. And so like our job, right, what we're trying to do is, is abstract that out so that studios don't need to do it themselves. And we're providing all those services on top of basic LLMs and, and generative models to actually make this working in gaming. There are a few other, like, there's basically, in terms of actual competitors right now, there's a few smaller companies that are kind of, like, looking and kind of, like, have, have you know, doing similar stuff to InWorld. To date, most are not, you know, part as, well, funded or, you know, they're kind of earlier stage. There's definitely, like, some some very early stage startups that we've seen that are exploring it, which, you know, people should, should try out. And, I, without, I don't, you know, I, I think all of our competitors are very great, you know, are, are doing good stuff. I haven't seen anything that is able to integrate everything end to end. And most importantly, I think that our team, most of our team comes from Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and has built these enterprise systems to get something working reliably in a games type of setting where, you know, you don't have that downtime. You have that, like our latency even, I think is, you know, significantly better than open AIs because you need that for games. All of that stuff that is kind of like the boring things that people don't think about, are, are things that we've really focused on. And so all the other stuff, the features, the goals and actions, the, you know, the long-term memory, all of that is, is super important. But if we can't serve it to you fast, reliably, at a good price, like that's our baseline. And to date, I haven't seen anyone really doing that, including in like, you know, most of the big providers like Microsoft, Google, OpenAI, they're also serving every single use case. And when you think about gaming specifically, which is uniquely real-time and fast and, and expensive when you think about the amount of turns going back and forth, very different types of optimizations than if you're trying to build AGI. So that's the one thing that we've seen. In terms of other you know things on the landscape, I'm 100% sure that there will be some big announcements coming out from the big providers soon in terms of them stepping into this space. What we've seen so far, though, is like Unity, for example, released like a lot of their AI tools, which is more focused on like a marketplace integration. So, for example, allowing things like InWorld to work better within Unity and on device. So that's something that you'll see. But I think, you know, as a developer, I would look into at least, you know, how are Unity and Unreal integrating these tools? And then beyond that, I, I think that, you know, there's a there's really not a lot of options today. Transparently, I'm sure that there will be more coming out. We've got some exciting announcements on the horizon that will also like hopefully 
augment uh, the ecosystem a little bit. But yeah, that's generally. And then I, I think you also have to think about what the different tools are. So Travis mentioned Eleven Labs, for example. We're we're good partners and friends with those guys. And you know, Eleven Labs is great if you're building one-off turns. But if you're doing it for real time and generating real time, it's very expensive. So you also have to consider your your cost quality trade off in terms of what you're building specifically and things like text to speech, ASR actually are more expensive than LLMs now. And so you've really got to kind of balance all those different parts. And, and when we work with partners, we manage all of that for them. But if you wanted to build from scratch, you'd have to really consider all those costs and you're probably going to end up something significantly, like something up to like 10 cents per per minute, which is getting pretty pricey if you're trying to build a game. So that's that's generally what we've seen. But it's a, it's a rapidly evolving space. I mean, the biggest thing that we are now realizing that we add value on is like, we're just managing all of that. We're just like, our team's job is basically to stay on top of what's the latest research, what's the latest open source models, what new models do we have coming out? How is that all integrated? How does it work together? Because frankly, it's like a full-time job just to like try and stay on top of everything happening in the AI and basically on the game engine side as well now. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I've got just a couple more questions. Travis, I don't know if you, you have any more questions, but... No, maybe, it's, it's super cool. I'm digging this. Maybe the next question I can ask you is the this issue that seems to come up with some people who, and, and for some legitimate reasons, feel threatened by AI. Maybe Maybe it's because having to do with, for example potentially infringing on the rights of original IP holders and things like that. And like, how would you address some of the grievances or some of the concerns that some of some of these people have when it comes to, you know, your services or, or maybe because you're not generative AI, does this not impact you guys? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, all of these concerns are very real and I think very legitimate. I mean, like I said before, I think that the sad part of every new big technology leap that we have is the first thing that people do as you know the people who are more interested in that initial capitalization on whatever the innovation is is they'd say how do i take over like all what these writers have been doing these artists these concept artists whatever and just like take that all away and now i can do it with ai and i think that's like unfortunate that that's how it first evolved because then that causes this reaction which is completely legitimate in my honest opinion like a lot of the stuff that's concerned around mid journey and uh, you know stable diffusion and all that yeah I, if i was an artist i'd also have those reactions what, of course, like our big message is like we are not trying to recreate existing game tools or game designs or writers tools. We're like trying to just give you a new tool that has unlocked things that have never been done before. And so that's like our biggest and why I think we don't really get that type of creative backlash in terms of like what our actual services where there is, though, of course, open questions is like. What is the data provenance of these models? So, for example, is it trained on copyright material? We're going to actually have a, like a, a blog post coming out on this, which is you know deter like kind of addressing this more more pointedly. But you know, there's a there's a challenge in the industry because everywhere through training sets, training data sets to foundation models, you know, there's only like limited visibility you have into what's actually in there. So, for example, there's like a lot of like web crawling data sets that are used for most foundation model model building that are managed by nonprofits and they say, you know, everything in here is public domain or it's off the internet. It's allowed to be used for training. But of course, if you take the entire internet, there's probably within there, like every Harry Potter quote that you could probably stitch together to like recreate the Harry Potter book. Right. Which is weird. And so when you then put that into a model, it's like, okay, well all of a sudden this thing knows everything about Harry Potter. And so, you know, that's, that's basically going back all the way through the research ecosystem of, of you know, building ML models, which is who's policing that, right? And and because not every research group has the capacity to build trillion token data sets themselves, we have to rely on these providers and, and trust them. And they do have assurances, you know, there's, there's indemnification and everything in there, but, you know, you have to have some trust. Then you go into the foundation models. So whether you're using OpenAI or using open source models like Llama, you know, we, again, these providers have assured the market that, you know, there's no copyright material in there, there's concerns, but we also see lawsuits, we also see some of these concerns. And so, you know, we as a company are, are doing our best to both verify any vendors that we're working with, verify any data sets that we're working with. And so, for example, we've been working on some stuff on voice, and we've frankly spent, we've slowed down the efforts by like two months to go back and make sure that there's no copyright materials in there. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that it's all, you know, legally buttoned up. Because like one, we want to respect creators and we want to have our our customers confident that that 
everything they're doing down the line. And, and I think this is just something that folks either on the development side or building tools need to be conscious of because it's kind of like when you're building a supply chain, right? Somewhere in your supply chain, if you're building textiles might involve some form of labor that is, you know, not, not ethical and you should be conscious of that. And I think we're kind of in the same thing with AI in the AI ecosystem, right? You're, you're basically plugging into a supply chain where somewhere down the line, there might've been some data that got in there that is, you know, not ethically enforced and you, it's all kind of on all of us. It's the same way as right. When you shop at fast, fast fashion, you're like, okay, well, I'm kind of trading that off. I know somewhere down the line, something shady is happening. And similarly, if you know, you're, you're getting a, a model or a data set that isn't verified, you're kind of taking the same bets. And so, you know, InWorld as a company is, is super dedicated to solving for this. And we've been like putting in a lot of extra work in terms of verification of data sets. And when we work with um, cu customers, like we're also, you know, putting a lot of effort to make sure that their data is secure. So, you know, you work with us, we'll partition off your model, your data, you know, even set up custom servers and everything so that even though we promise you, like, we're not going to, you know, make sure that your data ever touches anything from other, any other customers. And there's you know, any, any cross cross training there. We want to build the systems in a way that like basically ensures that confidence. And so all of that is, is just, I think something that is frankly, I see it. And I, even when this whole gender bias stuff started up, I thought like, this is just changing how we think about supply chains, right? Like AI is such a weird ecosystem that all the way from the hardware to the training data, to the models, we have to be conscious of that in the same way that we over the last 50 years realized that, you know, clothing supply chains and lots of other types have some ethical concerns in there. I think AI is no different and we're working hard to solve that. And I think that just everyone should be aware of who they're working with and, you know, the assurances that they have. Cool. So I just have one last question and that, sorry. I just said, Joe's asking the tough questions. So I like it. Okay. The, my, my last question is really around when you think about AI in gaming, and if you were to just, you know, and obviously you're, you're, you're an expert in the AI space, but aside from conversational AI, and I know Travis has been doing a lot of stuff in the generative side and things like that, but where, where do you expect there to be the most traction or the most exciting innovations outside of conversational AI? And are, are there any specific companies that we should be looking at or aware of? Is this for me or for Connor or, or both? Both, both of you guys. <laughs> you, you can start, Travis. Go ahead. All right, I'll start, I'll stumble around. So first I have a humorous version of this, which is I always talk really nicely about AI because I sort of feel like the LLMs are like the shock troops for the singularity. So that when the singularity <laughs> happens, they're going to like scrape this podcast. And if I'm talking bad about AI, I want a good place in the matrix, you know, like, like when the singularity happens and the AI takes over the world and we're all slaves to that, I want like a, like a good, when they plug me in the matrix, I want like a good job, like, like an actor, <laughs> you know, like something, something good. If you know that reference anyway, but, but no, I think, I think there's kind of, you know, again, I, I'm kind of an old timer. So I mean, the first games I was playing was back in you know, the 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 you know the text based multi user dungeon type stuff, and and I think there's a the, the technology just marches forward at this kind of fascinating rate, and and I think like I said, it, we sort of started talking about this that this this inflection point is an interesting because it hits every single part of the of the stack, right? It hits the technology and the creative and the business models and and all that kind of stuff. And I think what's interesting about and again having a lot of empathy for the businesses that are impacted by this type of technology disruption for the first time. What's interesting about games is games is always disrupted by technology. Like it's disrupted by technology like every year or two in a pretty significant way. Uh, and there are almost no protections in the games industry. I mean, we were talking to an executive from kind of the movie and the film industry about this topic relatively recently. And I sort of chuckled and I joked with him about like the fact that if you go on Twitch, you know, there's a, a kid who is streaming behind him, you know, a, a billion dollar franchise for free, right? With unlimited content, thousands of hours of yeah. billion dollar franchise sitting behind him. But if he if but if he turns his stereo on and a song is played, he gets strikes and, and the whole thing's taken <laughs> offline. And so like I think that's an interesting contrast, right? Because there's all these protections for good reason. I'm not knocking it, but good protections in music and film and art and and, and writer and the writer strike going on right now and all that. But the video game industry has never had those protections. It's been pretty rough for a long time. So at some level, I understand, you know, the the pain of, of the Darwinistic survival that you have to do in the game side of the industry and 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 the rather scary disruption that, that that's coming for the rest of the industry right now. But I also know from, from doing this for a long time that 
there's kind of no stopping it. I mean, you can regulate it, you can go pretty hard against it, but then the rest of the world's just going to march right past you, which is what happens in games. If you if you sort of regulate and slow down here, every competitor everywhere else in the world just supplies their higher quality, cheaper games to your customers. And so you only yeah. survive through innovation, not 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 sort of through hard regulation. I do think it should be regulated. I think there's a lot of real serious disruption going on, but there's also just sort of the gravity of, of the reality of the situation. And I don't have any good answers for it other than, you know, I, I've tried to keep myself on the front edge of technology and figuring out where it's going to go. This one's wild because it, like I said, it's hitting every part of the stack. It's hitting the technologists, it's hitting the creatives, it's hitting the business people, it's hitting everybody. And in this, in this case, where I think automation has hit a lot of blue-collar jobs in the past, automation AI is now hitting the, the white-collar jobs pretty hard. And I think you're seeing, you know, again, if you sort of a lot of the blue-collar people will probably say, like, hey, we've been through this before when forklifts showed up or when you know, automation at, at warehouses showed up. And now that, that sort of impacts hitting the white-collar folks. And I think they're, they're, they're going to try to fight and regulate, which I think is smart at some level. But also, I, I, I don't know if, it's, if there's a way to stop it. So... So then I go back to my like being nice to the the shock troops who hopefully will will give me a good place when the AI takes over our world we, and plug me to the matrix in a good spot. That's all I asked for. We had one of our engineers who from the beginning of starting in world is I like this is partially a joke but partially true. Would yeah, most of my was joking by the way. So. Well, would he'd go to the AI and be like, you know, Ilya is a good person. Like trust me, Ilya is <laughs> a good guy. Like you know, like, basically, and it's it's awesome. I mean, like, and he, he's like, yeah, like I don't know what's gonna happen, but let's just say it gets used somewhere down the line. Like you know, now it knows I'm a good guy. I'm always on its side. I helped build you, but I just want to kind of go back just to kind of a different take on your your question, Joe, as well. The 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 question of Things that I see coming beyond conversational AI, a big one is the so one of the biggest criticisms we get, right, is I, I, I even as a gamer, right, I don't want to talk sometimes during a game. I want to just like play the game. I don't want to talk. So like, how do you take advantage of all these new innovations without like introducing that new required input from users? And one big thing that we've been experimenting with is actually using generative models to not generate the actual conversational dialogue, but to generate basic control flows. And so I, as a user, can just interact with the world. And that gets fed in similarly to like what I would speak as words, like this contextual awareness of what me as Kylan as a player is doing. And then that basically generates the control flow for the character. Not, not like the sort of real-time strategy. I'm not talking like StarCraft AI kinds of things here. What I mean is more like, you know, if I play, if there was a style of game where for whatever reason I didn't, there was no dialogue, but there was sort of reactions that were had to me. Like you can think about, let's say, a Pokemon style of game, right? Where depending on the actions I had with the, to the Pokemon, it would react in different ways, right? Or an Animal Crossing style of game where like once I start pick, you know, picking up a shovel and digging, all my friends come over and start helping me dig up you know, the farm. And all those little things. And, and then the rest of that can be controlled by traditional styles of you know, strategic game, strategy game design or strategy game AI. But I think that generating actions, gestures, animations, all of that in real time is going to be like the next big, big technical boom. I think it's been the slowest thing to actually be adopted, like or, or innovated in the generative AI space. It's super hard, you know. It's basically a robotics problem, and it's super hard. But I think we're getting to the point now where I think over the next year you'll see a lot of innovation coming to that space, and also then how that ties to you know actually activating things in the game engine you know controlling more of the actual game engine itself using ai all of that's gonna like that's kind of where i see basically i think we've hit the bar with conversational ai and i think most of the innovation will now actually be in controlling broader parts of the game state and that's where most of our innovation is starting to pour into now as well yeah that makes sense yeah dude i'm, I'm super excited about what you guys are doing and you know i want to dig in deeper i'm excited you know, yeah, those in the audience definitely digging yeah. deeper. Those guys, they're doing yeah, cool stuff. I think we both have call schedules with you guys later, but uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's some selfishness going on here, to be honest. So you know, I'm not totally biased, but uh, yeah. no problems there. Yeah. All right, well, Kylan, Travis, thank you guys so much for joining, and for our audience, we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Thank yep. you. Bye, guys.